Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. 20 years ago today, I was... In my office at Warner Southern College, now Warner University in Lake Wales, Florida, working full-time for the college and part-time for the church that I was on staff at at the time in Lakeland, Florida. September the 12th was a, almost like a fog, honestly. Um, I just graduated college a year before, and you know, the world was big, full of possibilities and opportunities. And it's not that it wasn't after September 11th of 2001, but there was a radical shift, not just in the American culture, but in the world. Some of you weren't there when that happened. Some of you don't even remember it. 20 years ago. My wife and I were married in 1999. We had our first kid in 2002. And the kids that have grown up in my home don't remember that day. Hopefully, they'll remember it through an accurate reading of history someday. But they don't remember that. It seemed, however, that it was a wake-up call. I remember being an associate minister on staff in Lakeland, Florida when that happened, and and it's amazing that very next Sunday, so this was on a Tuesday, and Wednesday was September the 12th, and as we're kind of trying to make sense of everything and what this new reality was post 9-11-2001, We didn't know what to do. And most of the culture who didn't know what to do, who had not been a part of a church, maybe for years or at all, went to the one place they thought they could find hope. Churches were packed. Churches were packed for a few months. And then... With a call from our political leaders, we need to go back to life as normal, go back out and start shopping and act as if none of this ever happened. But but we, we couldn't go back and act as if none of this ever happened. It was a defining moment for my generation, for many of you and your generations too, I'm sure. And those of you that weren't born at that time, it defined your generation without you even knowing it. What do we do in the wake of tragedy? We've been doing this series called The Cost of Peace. Peace is not easily come by. And peace isn't the absence of difficulty or hardships. Peace is actually something that truly can only come from the Lord. I contend 
if you don't have the Lord in you or living in you because of your surrender to belief in him, then there might be moments where things aren't so bad, but peace? What is peace? Peace and the cost of peace is forgiveness. True peace that comes from God, that peace that passes understanding, cannot live within you without forgiveness living in you. Cleo, one of our teachers, said this morning that it came up in their classroom today, should we forgive the terrorists that flew into the buildings? What would Jesus do? He would forgive. You remember last week we were talking about forgiveness, and forgiveness, Jesus says, should be offered. Yes, even seven times over. And that forgiveness that's offered seven times over is something that must be offered. Now, the forgiveness can be rejected, can it? Because the people that did what they did thought they were doing their God's bidding. See, what Jesus does is he brings forgiveness to all. We talked about this last week. I just want to bring you back up to speed. Jesus offers forgiveness for all. But not all receive that forgiveness. That's a difficult scenario. Jesus died. He was spat upon. He was cursed. He was just ridiculed. Nailed upon that cross. And what, is he, what, what are the words he utters from the cross? He utters several phrases, not a whole lot, but several. In one of those instances, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. See, as the great intercessor, the one who took sins upon himself, God in the very flesh hung on that cross, not uttering curses toward his accusers, or his abusers, but instead saying, Lord, forgive them. You will never find written anywhere in the gospel of Jesus Christ where Jesus says to curse those who persecute you. You'll never find anywhere in the New Testament words of Christ where he says, do unto others as they do to you. Rather, do unto others as you would have them do to you. If, as the church, we are called to be the living, breathing body of Christ, then we are to be perfect as he is perfect and holy as he is holy, and we can only be those things when we are completely surrendered to him. And church, let me tell you something. I have been in ministry long enough now to see so many unsurrendered churches to God. They're living their own way, doing their own thing. Yes, there is a gospel being presented, but it is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a gospel of feel-good theology, a gospel of convenience, a gospel of comfortableness. It's not, a, it's not a gospel of sacrifice, of denial. It's not a gospel that says, forgive like you've been forgiven and love like you've been loved. 
See, we want to make the gospel so palatable for people that we are willing to compromise the gospel in ways that, that diminish the power and the authority of God. Because we think that we're strong enough or more powerful or or, or we have what it takes to conquer the sins of this world in our own lives, and we just fool ourselves. See, this is one of the traps of the enemy to get us to believe that it's first off about us and what we want out of life, and secondly, to believe that we have what it takes to overcome anything in life. That is so contrary to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. That has no place within the preaching or teaching of the word. If any of you wants to be my follower, Jesus says, Luke chapter 9, you must first deny yourself. And then what? See, this was before Jesus was crucified. He was with his disciples. He was teaching them. And then he is having this teaching moment with them, and he's talking about crosses before he becomes the emblem of salvation on a cross. And he says, you, if you want to follow me, you got to remember it's not about you. It's not about the church that you go to. It's not about the songs you sing, the guy or woman that stands on the stage it's not about the evangelists on the street corner. It's not about any of that. It's not about how often you serve at a soup kitchen, how much money you give to the church, how many good things you say about people. It's only about Christ and Christ alone. And where the church in our culture, and dare I say even the world in some degree, has gotten it wrong is that we've relied too much on ourselves rather than the Holy Spirit, and we've lost our power and authority in our culture. This has nothing to do with my message today. So... <laughs> So Satan uses, and yes, I do believe there is an enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. If you came into this place today thinking this evil force of, of, of demonic entities empowered and emboldened by Satan or the devil was just this fictitious thing in Scripture, you came to hear a wrong message. There is a hell, there is a Satan, as much as there is a God and the Lord Jesus. There is a right and a wrong. There are absolutes within society. We live in a world that is rocked with sin and death, but there is an escape hatch out of sin and death. That escape hatch has a crossbar on it. And it's only through that cross that there is any salvation for anyone. You have to leave a life of sin in order to enter that space. You can't go around it. You can't beat the door open with any kind of hammer or jackhammer or anything like that. It is only through Christ. John chapter 10, Jesus says the same thing in a different way. He says, I am the shepherd and my followers are the sheep. They know, my, they know my voice. You ever wondered what the voice of God sounds like? 
See, Jesus gives us a very clear indication of who his followers are because they know his voice. Do you know the voice of the Lord? Are you one of his sheep? Because if you're one of his sheep, you're going to have tuned your ear to his voice. And you're going to attune your ear to his word, the Bible, and his living word, Christ. And he says, I am the gate. And if you want to enter the sheepfold in John chapter 10, what does he say you have to do? You have to enter through him. Only thieves and those who, who were up to no good try to get in over the wall, try to sneak in. That's not how this happens. You have to go through the shepherd. Now, you maybe have heard me use this. this uh, now, it's not even an analogy. This is actually what, what shepherds in Jesus' day would do. They would have a, 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 a fence of sticks or stones around this, this place where they would want to have the sheep bed down for the night so they'd be secure from any kind of predator. And instead of actually having a gate that they built to put in the entryway of that, once the sheep had come into the sheepfold, the shepherd would lay across the entrance. Did you know that? Jesus was telling them some very solid and profound imagery. There is no other way into that sheepfold, into that secure place, except through him, the good shepherd. We live in a world where there are a lot of predators that seek to attack and, and, and tear us down. We live in a world where bad things happen to good people. And I put that in quotes because I've said before, when Jesus was confronted by a teacher of the law who came up to him and said, good teacher, we know that you're dot, dot, dot. And he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why do you call me good? There's only one good, and that's the Father. So we have convinced ourselves we're good, but we also have this confessional aspect of Romans where, G, or where Paul says, we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. So none of us is good. No, not, not one. The only thing that makes us good is, is surrendering our lives to Christ and allowing him to take residence in us. That's how we become good. That's how we become perfect as he is perfect and holy as he is holy because he imposes that holiness on us and in us and then we begin to live those holy lives surrendered to him in sacrifice. Now, how do I transition to Joseph? Joseph was a guy in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 37, all the way through chapter 50. We have the longest account of, the, of, of, of this person by the name of Joseph. Nobody else in Genesis is spoken of as much as Joseph. 37 through chapter 50. Joseph lived in a nomadic tribe of people with his father Jacob and his other brothers and sisters. He was the youngest of the bunch, or one of the youngest. Benjamin, his other brother, was younger than him. And he starts having dreams as a teenager. How many, how many of you ever had dreams as a teenager? Huh? These, he, and, so, and how many of you took those dreams as a teenager and you strutted your stuff in front of everybody? I'm going to be a professional fill-in-the-blank. <laughs> that could be bad. I'm going to be a professional 
water skier. I'm going to be a professional basketball player. I'm going to be a professional football player. I'm going to be a professional singer, actor, fill in the blank, right? We all had these trouble to be an astronaut, the president. And so he takes these dreams and he goes to his brothers. He says, hey guys, it's a young punk brother. You have all these older brothers and you come to your brothers and how many times is your younger sibling annoying to you? Right? Hey guys, hey, hey guys. More than likely, Joseph was probably 15 or 16 at the time he came to his brothers with these dreams. He says, hey guys, I had this dream. I had this dream, we were in a field and we were harvesting some grain and uh, you know how we stack them in bundles? You know that? It's pretty cool, right? So here's the thing. Uh, we're, we're making our bundles of grain to be picked up and <laughs> your bundles all came and bowed down to mine. Isn't that cool? Right? Yeah. Sweet. The brothers, the brothers not only were annoyed just because he's the younger brother, they're like, who do you think you are? What, you're saying someday we're going to bow down before you? <laughs> yeah, that's not happening. And then not too long after that, he has another dream. And mom and dad are in the picture at this point when he comes and tells the dream, hey guys, I had another dream. I had another dream. <laughs> you want to hear it? <laughs> so here's, what I, here's the dream. Okay. Um, I had a dream uh, that all the stars and the sun and the moon, they came and bowed before me. <laughs> if, they weren't, if, if they weren't upset before, this was just a further, like pushing the splinter into the finger deeper, right? And mom and dad are like, whoa, 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 you think we're going to bow down to you? That's not how this works. Imagine your kid telling you that. Oh, yeah, you're going to serve me someday. I serve you all the time. What do I get for it? <laughs> right? You won't even pick up your shoes or take out the trash. I have to do that. Anywho. <laughs> that's just where the story starts. And it gets really dicey in the middle. Here's a key point this morning. Great offense is an opportunity for great forgiveness. And great forgiveness leads to great peace. So, after those dreams, some time elapses, not a whole lot of time, and um, they were a, a shepherding bunch. They were nomadic people, but the, their father Jacob, if you read back in the story of ways, had a ton of, of goats and sheep that he had tricked his uncle Laban out of. And so now they've left Laban and they've struck out on their own and they got all of this livestock. And so the older brothers are tending the flocks and what they would do because there really weren't boundary markers in those days, they could wander through different fields, go to different towns. They could actually travel far and wide with their flocks to feed them, to, to get them healthy and growing and all that. So the older brothers end up taking a trek off in this direction, and uh, they are, they're a far piece off. And so Jacob, 
the dad, says, hey, Joseph, I want you to go check on your brothers, okay? And, and come back and give me a report how they're doing, what's going on. And so J Joseph says, okie dokie. And he takes off. It takes him a three days journey to get to where he's going. Now, by foot, you could travel a pretty far piece in a day's walk. But there's, I mean, they're tens of miles away, and he's got to travel three days to get to where his brothers are. Well, he finally finds out as he's traveling through, hey, have you seen a bunch of guys with sheep and goats? And they're like, oh, yeah, they were over here in Dothan. You're, you know, just keep going that way. You'll find them. And so he ends up finding them, but before he sees them, they see him coming a far piece off. And as he's traveling over the hills far away, the brothers are like, oh, here comes this dreamer. And so this is the first offense, the first offense toward Joseph. Here comes this dreamer, and they begin to scheme together. We're far enough away from home. Nobody else is around. Let's kill him. We all hate him. You know that, right? Dad even gave him a special coat. It's really a coat of royalty. One of us should have gotten that, or at least the oldest of us, Reuben, who really is next in line to the father of the house, Jacob, at least he should have gotten a royal coat. Why did the youngest one get it? We need to do away with this kid. We hate him. And so as they're scheming and he comes upon them, this is the story. Genesis 37, verse 18. When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. As he approached, they made plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. We can tell our father a wild animal has eaten him. And then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard of their scheme, the oldest one, he came to Joseph's rescue. He says, oh, no, 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 no. Hey, guys, let's not kill him. Why should we shed any blood? Let's just throw him into this empty cistern here in the wilderness, and then he'll die without, without our laying a hand on him. Reuben actually was secretly planning to rescue Joseph and return him to his father. He was going to come back later. He was playing along with the scheme. He's like, yeah, 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 yeah. So let's do this. Um, let's not kill him. I mean, you know, we probably shouldn't murder anybody. It's a bad idea especially one of our kinfolk. So let's just throw him in the cistern and let starvation run its course. So when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off this beautiful robe that he was wearing that his dad had given him. They grabbed him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There wasn't any water in it, so no fear of drowning there or having to tread water. Then just as they were sitting down to eat, they looked up and they saw a caravan of camels in the distance coming toward them. It was a group of Ishmaelite traders taking a load of gum and balm and aromatic resin from Gilead down to Egypt. Now, who are the Ishmaelite traders? Well, if you go back just slight way into the story to Abraham, Abraham was waiting on this promised child that God was supposed to give him and Sarah in their old age, and they thought God had forgotten them after about 20 years of not having this promised son and then Abraham and Sarah decide to do actually it was Sarah who says hey why don't you take my servant girl and Abraham's like yeah well and he did and Ishmael came from Sarah and Abraham or not Sarah but from Hagar and Abraham's union together 
as would happen, God actually came through on his promise. Do you believe that God actually comes through on his promises? We get impatient, don't we? And God gave Sarah a son through Abraham. We know him as Isaac. And Isaac was the father of Jacob and Esau. So not too far back in the story. So now you have these Ishmaelite traders from Midian, which is modern-day Saudi Arabia. If you look at it on a map, that's about where it would be. So they had settled in that region when Hagar and Ishmael got kicked out of Abraham's household and sent packing. They had grown into a rather large tribe. And now here these traders are bringing wares from their location to trade them in Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain by killing our brother, leaving him here in the cistern? We have to cover, uh, we'd have to cover up the crime. Instead of hurting him, why don't we sell him to those Ishmaelite traders coming along the way there? After all, he is our brother. He's our own flesh and blood. First time you hear that, right? Some sensibility. The twisted sensibility. He's like, he's our own flesh and blood. Oh, we didn't realize he was our brother. Yeah, okay, good. Let's do this. So instead of hurting him, let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, came by. Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver. And the traders took him to Egypt. Sometime later, Reuben returned to get Joseph out of the cistern. Where did Reuben go? Why isn't he there, right? He went to take a poo. I don't know where he went, but he wasn't there when they were scheming about... That was really uncouth, and I've probably offended some of you just now. We're doing a series called The Bait of Satan, The Trap of Offense, if you want to join a group. Okay, anywho, so anyway, Reuben's not there, and he comes back later to get his brother, not realizing the other brothers have sold Joseph. Then he went back, his brothers, and he lamented, the boy is gone, what will I do now? Then the brothers killed a young goat, dipped Joseph's robe into its blood, and then they sent the beautiful robe to their father with this message, look what we found. Doesn't this robe belong to your son? See, when you want to distance yourself from something you've done wrong, you disassociate from the problem or the issue, don't you? It's this Shakespearean ideology of thou doth protest too much kind of idea, right? You're putting a lot of distance. Isn't this your son's robe? Instead of isn't this our brother's robe that you gave him? See, when we get caught in sin or when we live a life of sin, we tiptoe around the issue that it's sin. Instead, we justify it. We try to find a way around it. We try to distance ourselves from the bad things that we've done or are doing. And we try to, try to at least somehow move beyond it. Yes, he said, it's my son's robe. And a wild animal must have eaten him. Joseph has clearly been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes as a sign of mourning. He dressed himself in burlap. Have you ever done that? It's really comfortable. It's all the rage. Burlap is, is, uh, is really itchy. 
And uh, it's a sign of discomfort in mourning. They would dress, they didn't want to be comfortable during a time of mourning. So he dressed himself in burlap. And he mourned deeply for his son for a long time. And his family all tried to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted. Comforted. He says, I'll go to my grave mourning for my son, he would say. And then he would weep. I don't know what it's like to lose a child. I pray to God I never know that. But some of you do. And you know the deep grief Jacob was feeling, at least at the idea that his son had died. Now, there's another story going on. The message gets back, gets back to Jacob. Jacob is mourning. So where's, where's Joseph? He's on his way to Egypt. He finally gets to Egypt, and he's sold to a guy by the name of Potiphar. Potiphar was one of the captain guards of, of Pharaoh, and he actually was a pretty powerful man. And um, as one of the servants or slaves of Potiphar's home, he begins to actually perform very well for Potiphar. He... He doesn't wallow in self-pity. I'm sure he's hurt. He's wounded. He's, he's somewhat probably even jaded. Why would my brothers do this to me? Yes, naive. When you're younger, you're just naive because you do things and say things you don't realize are ticking other people off. But not enough to deserve what he just went through. But what happens when he's there in Potiphar's house is some sense must come to him. We see the nature, the character, and the integrity of Joseph and who he really is because he begins to work hard. This was the new reality for Joseph. There was no going back. There was no way to telegraph dad. There was no, how in the world is anything going to change? And so I've got to find a way to move beyond this, and how do I do that? You see, I see a lot of people who are, horribly betrayed, rejected, or abused that never thrive beyond the abuse because they can never get over what's happened to them. They allow the offense to take such a deep root in their life that it defines them, it controls them, it has become an ingrained part of them, so deeply rooted that they cannot be distinguished from the offense. But Joseph doesn't do this. He doesn't just muddle through life, just kind of doing whatever he can to make it through. He actually sets his mind to saying, what am I going to do now? He trusts in God. He believes in God. How could this happen to him? I'm going to make the best of it. And I can't be defined by what happened to me. And so he grows. He thrives. He matures in Potiphar's house. So much so that Potiphar trusts him so immensely. He says, Joseph, um, I want you to be head of my household. Other than me, of course, I'm head of the household. I'm the ruler here in this house. But I want you to rule over everything of mine. I trust you so much. I want you to take care of my house, all of my servants, all the assets I have. It says in the passage of Scripture that 
that Potiphar had nothing to worry about except what he was going to eat for his meals. What am I going to eat today? That's really all he was worried about, concerned about, because Joseph was so trustworthy and took care of everything. Now, that's a great end to a story if we stop it there, but the story doesn't end there because Potiphar has a wife. We don't know what her name is, Potiphar's wife. Wife must be the last name, okay? So here's the thing. Joseph must be some eye candy. Who giggled back there? Ruth, was that you? (laughs) Yes. Joseph, it says, was pretty hot because he lived in Egypt, and that's where the sun usually comes. Just kidding. Choke. It was a dad choke. Get it? Thank you. People at home are laughing right now. Anywho, he ha- he's really handsome. Potiphar's wife is like, yo, he's hot. And so she tries to corner him multiple occasions. She propositions him to sleep with her. Here comes the fence number two. Genesis 39, verses 6 through 20. Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man. Eye candy. That's how I paraphrase it. And Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you're his wife. Can you imagine having this conversation? How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against, not Potiphar. Where's Joseph's focus? We have a lot of loyalty to people in our lives, don't we? Those people in our lives are not perfect. Did you know that? There was only one perfect person who emanated from a perfect father in heaven. We call him Jesus. So who or to whom does Joseph have loyalties? God. First and foremost, above all else, yes. He says, Potiphar has entrusted me with everything. I have all the power in the house. Except over you. And I'm definitely not going to sin against God. Well, she kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her. And he kept out of her way as much as possible. This is hard when you're under the same palace roof. But this is obviously a mansion, big space, because he's like a high official in Pharaoh's court. So he could probably avoid her decently. Side note, when we're tempted... Is our response to go closer to the temptation or away from it? See, a lot of people like to see how close they can get to the edge. Potiphar's wife isn't bad looking. She's offering me, I mean, we could do this in secret. We never get caught. And I am the most powerful one in the home besides Potiphar. But I can't, I shouldn't do it, no. But I mean, why shouldn't I? I mean, I don't know. Could it? Do you see, does this ever play in your mind on different things? 
Do you ever start to toy around with this fantasy life of the what ifs? If I had done this or if I do this. I mean, what if nobody finds out? I mean, nobody will be none the wiser. It's not going to be hurting anybody, right? You see, Joseph knows well enough that God sees everything that happens. And it's to him, not only does he owe loyalty, but honor and respect. He has the fear of the Lord in him. And so he now puts distance between the temptation and himself. He doesn't go close to it. He avoids it at all costs. He doesn't try to be in the same room with it. One day, however, no one else was around when he went to do his work. She came and grabbed him by his cloak. So obviously his back was to her. He didn't see her sneaking up on him. She grabs his cloak, which is an outer robe that he would have been wearing at the time, and she demanded him, come on, sleep with me. Well, Joseph did this, this acrobatic move and pulled himself out of his robe or cloak and took off running. And she's got the cloak in her hands. Have you seen this in movies or sitcoms where somebody grabs it and you slip out of it? It's like one of those Jackie Chan movies, right, where you can slip out of anything. Well, he does that. He takes off running, but he left the cloak in her hands. When she saw that she was holding his cloak and that he had fled, she called out to her servants. Soon all the men came running. Look, she said, my husband has brought this Hebrew slave here to make fools of us. He came into my room to rape me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream, he ran outside and got away, but he left his cloak behind with me. Offense number two. She kept the cloak with her until her husband came home. Then she told him her story, that the Hebrew slave you brought into our house tried to come in and fool around with me. She said, but, but when I screamed, he ran outside leaving his cloak with me. Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph and he threw him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held. And there he remained. Guys, what would you do if someone tried to mess with your wife? Yeah, you'd probably want them to be in prison, but you'd pretty much put them to the point of death. Now, you shouldn't because that's not the Christian thing to do. But you see this all the time, right? You try to do what to my wife? Can imagine somebody trying to rape your wife or trying to hurt one of your kids. Yeah, you can call the police and let the police do their work, but there's this guttural instinct in most men to take vengeance. There's some self-control in Potiphar. I don't know why that's something we, we, I don't want to speculate on too much right now. It's a different sermon for a different time. But I find it interesting that he didn't just run him through with a spear or a sword. Instead, he had him put in prison. I think that's kind of an act of mercy, to be honest with you. Or is it an act of God's sovereignty? So now, Joseph's in prison. He's in prison for two years. While he's there, he sees several other inmates, people that work for Pharaoh himself, get thrown in prison. Who knows what the reason is? But there are two guys in particular, a bagel, a bagel. <laughs> well, it is a Jewish treat, a bagel. So 
a baker <laughs> and a cup bearer, but no candlestick maker. They're a baker and a cup, sorry. I just had to ease that in there. My kids right now in here are like, oh, dad, please stop. Anywho, there's a, there's a baker and a cup bearer to Pharaoh himself. Well, those guys have some terrifying dreams while they're in prison with Joseph, and, and Joseph's like, yeah, I could probably interpret those for you. I'm really paraphrasing. You've got to read this on your own. But um, he <clears throat> interprets the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer. The baker and the cupbearer's dreams come true because when they are released from prison, the baker is executed like Joseph had interpreted, and the cupbearer is reinstituted back as a cupbearer to Pharaoh. So when, when he interpreted these dreams specifically to the cupbearer, he says, Joseph says to the cupbearer, he says, when you get presents with the Pharaoh, can you tell them how I've been unjustly treated? Just remember me when you get into the presence of some authority, let them know that I'm here unjustly. So the cupbearer gets reinstituted back in his position and he forgets. Conveniently, I'm sure. Until one day, Pharaoh begins having dreams of his own. And they're not just your normal, I ate a bad burrito the night before dreams. They're these dreams that are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's like out of nowhere. He had a dream of heads of wheat that spring up from the ground. Some really withered heads of grain, seven heads, and seven heads of healthy grain. And in this dream, the withered heads of grain swallow up the healthy heads of grain. What do we make of this? And then shortly thereafter, he has another dream of really emaciated cattle. Seven emaciated, skinny, on the edge of death cows. And then these plump ready for hamburger and steak cows over here. And the skinny cows, and of course they would, they're hungry, they come and eat the other cows, the healthy ones. And so Pharaoh then summons all of the magicians, astrologers, wise men throughout his kingdom to come and interpret these dreams for him. Well, they all come before him and they're like, yeah, we got nothing. Yeah, we could roll dice on this one, but we'd be just spitballing. So not sure what you want from us. We can't figure it out. That's not exactly what they said, but if you read it on your own, you'll figure out it's pretty close. And then the cupbearer's like, oh, I remember. Actually, he was waiting strategically to use this so he could gain favor with the Pharaoh, I bet. But he says, I remember a guy that interpreted a dream for me and the baker. You remember the baker <laughs> you had killed? That was, those were good times. But anyway, so I remember he, he interpreted my dream and the baker's dream exactly the way it came out. His name was Joseph, if I remember correctly. And Pharaoh's like, well, bring him up here. So... He goes through the pampering process because you can't just come out of prison and stand before the Pharaoh. So they clean him up. They put nice smelling stuff on him, oil his body up. You know, do the proper thing if you're going to have presence with the most powerful person in the region. And he's standing before Pharaoh and Pharaoh's like, dude, 
Actually, he doesn't say dude. He's like, peasant. Actually, I don't think he says that either. But he says, hey, can you interpret my dreams for me? And Joseph's like, you know, it's really up to God. Do you see what he's deferring to here? He's deferring back to God. He's like, I'll do the best I can, but really it's God who gives me the interpretation. So um, what are your dreams? So he tells him the dreams. And Joseph is imparted this knowledge by God that there's going to be seven years of abundance in the land. He says, Pharaoh, listen, there's going to be adequate rain, adequate nutrition in the soil. The crops that we gather in seven years are going to be so abundant, there won't even be anywhere to keep all of the leftovers. But he says, there are seven years of famine that are coming that are going to swallow up those seven years of abundance. It is going to be the worst famine the world has ever known at this time. He says, though, here's what I think you should do. I mean, if you set aside, I mean, if you really build cisterns and caverns and those kind of things to store up enough grain for seven years, you know, if you, and he starts, you know, doing the abacus. (laughs) I've never seen one. But he starts doing it and he figures up, you're going to have a heck of a lot left over. Actually, you'll probably have enough truth to be known that uh, it will keep us safe through the seven years of famine. And Pharaoh's like, where'd you get this guy? Prison? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, he's my dude. And so he takes his ring and he puts it on Joseph's finger. These are significant. No, this is a wedding ring. Yes, that's significant. But they had signet rings in those days. It was your key to authority. And the Pharaoh's signet ring gave him authority and power throughout all the land as the most powerful person. So he takes that ring, he puts it on Joseph's finger, and he says, now you are the most powerful person in the land of Egypt. I want you to order these affairs. I want you to make sure all of what you told me is going to take place, and I want you to administrate the whole the whole nation, the whole empire of Egypt. Only I will be greater than you in the land. And Joseph's like, sounds like a good deal to me. And so he starts to administrate the affairs of the kingdom. Famine would sweep throughout not just Egypt, but the whole region, all the way up into Canaan. So if you know where Egypt is on the map, you have the Sinai Peninsula. That's this little V-shaped looking territory in between Egypt and the Middle East. And so, and then you have what is modern day Israel. That during that day and age in Jacob's time was not Israel, it was called Canaan. There were a bunch of tribes that lived in that region and area. And that's where his dad, Jacob, and his brothers used to live. And so famine spread that far. And so one day Jacob's like, hey guys, to his sons, we're gonna die of starvation. But I hear there's, there's abundance in Egypt go secure us some grain and bring it back or we're all going to die. And so the brothers go. They make the long trek and journey to Egypt on the Nile River and they get grain and they come back. When they go there, who's administering the distribution of grain during the seven years of famine? Joseph. There's nothing that happens that he doesn't know about. And so there's this caravan or band of men from Canaan they're Semitic people, and he's like, huh, I'll go check that out. They're my peeps. And guess who he finds? His brothers. You know, 20 years ago, that had sold him into slavery. 20 years. 
20 years is a long time. And yet, in some cases, it's not a long time at all. I was telling you earlier, there are days, like yesterday and day before yesterday, I was listening to footage of 9-11 attacks, and I was instantly taken back to where I was, what the smells were like, what I was doing, everything. I'm like watching this movie on TV, but yet it's not a movie. And I'm, I'm... I find myself starting to cry, and I'm not a crier, but I was taken immediately back into that moment. And I'm hearing the distressed calls from people on the upper floors, saying, I don't think I'm going to get out. I just want you to know I love you. And my heart's breaking. It's just like I was transported to that place and time again. At the sight of his brothers, Joseph had to be transported immediately back to the cistern. And the scheming brothers who wanted to kill him. He sends them with grain. And the money they brought, he had the people that were giving them the grain put the money bags back in the grain bags so that when they got home, they would have basically gotten their grain for free. And so they got home and they realized, oh, shoot. Did we not pay them? The money's in the bags. We're thieves. And so they kind of freak out a little bit, but they're like, oh, well, we'll just, you know what? Here's the deal. Well, when we go back, because we're going to have to go back for more grain, we'll take this money and then more money and, and we'll even up because, you know, we don't, we, we got to make this right. And so they go back again. And in this time, after they, after they get the grain, Joseph plans a little bit of a scheme. You know, his brother schemed against him. He's like, I'm going to toy around with them. It's kind of fun. And so he takes his golden cup, which is kind of a royal cup, and he places it in none other than Benjamin's bag. Now, I'm leaving out a ton of detail here. If you want to go back and read the whole story, please read it for yourself. But he puts this golden cup in Benjamin's bag. Now, Benjamin is the son of Jacob's favorite wife, and he's also the biological whole brother of Joseph. So he puts the cup in that sack, sends them on their way without their knowing his cup is in Benjamin's sack. And then once they get a, a, a far piece off, he says to the guards under his control, uh, the Pharaoh's guards, go get them. <laughs> so he sends them after them. You've stolen my, my Lord's cup, his golden cup. And so they break open the bag, and they're in Benjamin's bag. Once they search through it all, they find this golden cup, and it's said, aha, you did it. And they bring them back, and they're all peeing their pants or robes or cloaks, whatever they're wearing, and they're, and they're standing now in front of Joseph. We had one great offense by his brothers, another great offense by Potiphar's wife. And you think, all right, here it comes. <laughs> Climax of the story. Yes, he's going he's gonna to give it to him. Genesis 45. Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. 
Then he broke down and he wept. He wept so loudly the Egyptians could hear him. And word of it quickly spread to Pharaoh's palace. I'm Joseph, he says to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing. Can you imagine? I mean, just, I am very visual. So I've got this picture in my mind. They're like, right? Speechless. Trying to make sense of it all. Am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? Is this reality? But you, we, we sold you. I mean, how, and you're, and I'm, they're speechless. They were, they were just stunned to realize Joseph was standing in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer, probably like this. Because, I mean, okay, once it starts to set in a little bit, you're like, ah, uh, we did you bad. <laughs> you know? Come closer. Okay. Right? Please come closer. And so they came closer. And he said, I'm Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery. Like, yeah, don't bring that back up. <laughs> right? I'm the brother you sold into slavery in Egypt. Hey, but don't be upset. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. See, this famine has ravaged the land for two years, and it's going to last five more years, and there will be neither plowing or harvesting during that time. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you, and he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all of Egypt. Do you see what he's saying to them? See, along these 20 years of hardships and success, and then hardships and success, Joseph kept his eyes on God. He said, God, I don't know why this stuff keeps happening to me, but I trust you. And God says, that's all I need from you. Because I see a bigger picture than you see. I see a bigger picture than your brothers threatening to kill you. I see a bigger picture than Potiphar's wife falsely accusing you. I see a bigger picture in your life that I want you to see. But the only way you can see it is if you trust me and follow my lead. Too many people give up when they're in prison. Whether it's a real prison or a prison of their own making. They say, there's no way I could ever get out of this mess. And so they give up instead of leaning into God. So so one of the the hardest things as a spiritual leader and as a pastor, when you breathe and try to breathe life into people's lives, and they're like, no, 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 I just can't. Don't tell me God is good. Don't tell me God is love. Do you know what's happened to me? Do you know how bad it is? 
No, I don't know how bad it is for you, but I know how good he is. Joseph goes on to say, now hurry back to my father and tell him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me master over all the land of Egypt. So come down to me immediately. You can live in the region of Goshen, which is on the eastern side of the Nile River, where you can be near me with all your children and your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, everything you own. I'll take care of you here, for there are still five more years of famine, remember, ahead of us? Otherwise, you and your household and your animals, you're going to starve to death. You're not going to make it through this famine. Then Joseph added, look, you can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin. I really am Joseph. Can't you see the family resemblance between us? Go tell my father of my honored position here in Egypt. Describe for him everything that you've seen, and then bring my father here quickly. And then weeping with joy, he embraced Benjamin, and Benjamin did the same. And then Joseph kissed each of his brothers, and he wept over them, not because of what they had done to him, but because of how much he loved them, the ones who had done him the greatest harm. After that, the speechlessness is gone, and they begin talking to him freely. Sixteen, seventeen-year-old Joseph had a dream. The dream was from God. Both dreams, as a matter of fact. And they would come true. Little did his brothers know it. In trying to thwart the dreams of this so-called dreamer, they fell into the hands of God and were spared their lives. I don't know why people go through what they go through, the hardships, the difficulties, but I do know there is a God who's good, who is sovereign, who is all-powerful, and he can bring anything good out of anything bad. The story doesn't end here. They come, they settle in the region of Goshen, they grow into a population that so outnumbers the Egyptians that after 400 years of being there, as the story would go, the new Pharaoh, 400 years later, would become frightened and intimidated by the Hebrew peoples and their number that he wanted to kill off all their newborn boys. And thus we get Moses floating down a river in a basket. If there's anything I know about God's word, offense will sink you. The trap of offense from the enemy to get you to hold on to the hurts, to get you to hold on to the abuse, will destroy you. But freedom in God comes through releasing, releasing people from that offense. Again, I'm, I'm, let me tell you this. Forgiveness of the individual doesn't mean that what they did was right. It's not you're saying, if I forgive you, it doesn't mean that what you did was okay. But it means I'm letting you off the hook for the offense. I'm not going to harbor ill feelings towards you. I actually want God to bless you, and I want you to know the God that I serve. 
Is this the story of your life? As our worship team comes forward today, are there any betrayals, rejections, wounds, and hurts that you've experienced in life? And the question is, how have you dealt with them? Have these things defined you or have you learned to forgive and overcome these things in such a way that you see the hand of God molding you and making you into someone stronger? Have you allowed unforgiveness and bitterness to grow deep roots in your life and in your heart? Are, you, are, 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 are your wounds, do they define you? Do you carry the wounds, the festering wounds of unforgiveness and offense in you? so that others can see them and say, look at how bad I was hurt. Or have you allowed God to heal those wounds? And rather than those wounds and scars defining you, have you allowed them to stand as stark reminders of God's healing touch on your life? That, you see that used to be a festering wound. It's a scar now, but it's a reminder of how good God is to bring healing to me. One last thing. It's important to remember Jesus had wounds too. And those wounds were reminders, not definers. They defined us, but they didn't define him. They reminded him that his arms were stretch wide for you and me. And his offer of forgiveness, even then, extended through 2,000 years to now, he says, come to me, you who were weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble at heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. You see, for my yoke is easy, Jesus says, and my burden is light. Don't live a life of bitterness and go to your grave breathing your last breath with revenge deep in your heart. Rather, let forgiveness rule the day, for forgiveness is the cost of peace. Father, this day in this place, I know there are people here that are wounded. They don't quite bear the scars yet, but they bear the infection of offense. And I pray, God, that you would remind them that the only healing balm and salve that they can have to be healed from this festering wound of offense is forgiveness. Remind them that through Christ they are forgiven. They just need to step into the forgiveness. And in order to step into God's forgiveness, into your forgiveness, God, through Jesus Christ, they have to surrender everything everything hurts successes everything to you and when they do that sweet release of the heavy burdens of this life is lifted and replaced with your burden which is light the burden of the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ bring healing and deliverance in this place today in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, 
where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Maine is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.